Today's reading, if you can get your microscope out, is from Daniel chapter 4, and we'll be reading the whole chapter. Daniel 4, these are God's words. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages who are dwelling in all the earth, your peace be great. The signs and wonders that God Most High hath done with me, it is good before me to show. His signs, how great, and his wonders, how mighty. His kingdom is a kingdom eternal, and his rule is with generation and generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, have been at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. A dream I have seen, and it maketh me afraid. And the dreams on my bed and the visions of my head do trouble me. And by me a decree is made to cause all the wise ones of Babel to come up before me, that the interpretation of the dream they may cause me to know. Then coming up are the mages, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. And the dream I have told before them, and its interpretation, they are not making known to me. And at last hath come up before me Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy God, and the dream before him I have told. O Belteshazzar, great one of the mages, as I have known that the spirit of the holy God is in thee, and no secret doth oppress thee, the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation tell. As to the visions of my head on my bed, I was seeing, and look, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height is great. Great hath become the tree, yea, strong, and its height doth reach to the heavens, and its sight to the end of the whole land. Its leaves are fair, and its fruit great, and food for all is in it. Under it take shade the beast of the field, and in its branches dwell the birds of the heavens, and of it are fed all flesh. I was seeing in the visions of my head on my bed, and look, a watcher and a holy one from the heavens is coming down. He is calling mightily, and thus hath said, Cut down the tree, and cut off its branches, shake off its leaves, and scatter its fruit, let the beast move away from under it, and the birds from off its branches. Yet the stump of its roots leave in the earth, and with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field, and with the dew of the heavens is it wet. And with the beast is his portion in the grass of the earth, His heart from man is changed, and the heart of a beast is given to him, and seven times pass over him. By the decree of the watchers is the sentence, and by the saying of the holy ones the requirement, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High is ruler in the kingdom of men, and to whom he willeth he giveth it, and the lowest of men he doth raise up over it. This dream I have seen, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, and thou, O Belteshazzar, the interpretation tell. Because all the wise ones of my kingdom are not able to cause me to know the interpretation, and thou art able, for the spirit of the holy God is in thee. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, hath been appalled for a time, and his thoughts do trouble him. The king hath answered and said, O Belteshazzar, let not the dream and its interpretation trouble thee. Belteshazzar hath answered and said, My lord, the dream be to those hating thee, and its interpretation to thine enemies. The tree that thou hast seen, that hath become great and strong, and its height doth reach to the heavens, and its sight to all the land, and its leaves are fair, and its fruit great, and food for all is in it. Under it dwell the beast of the field, and on its branches sit the birds of the heavens. Thou it is, O king, for thou hast become great and mighty, and thy greatness hath become great, and hath reached to the heavens, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And that which the king hath seen, a watcher and a holy one, coming down from the heavens, and he hath said, Cut down the tree and destroy it. 
but the stump of its roots leave in the earth, and with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and with the dew of the heavens it is wet, and with the beast of the field is his portion, until seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and the decree of the Most High it is that hath come against my lord the king. And they are driving thee away from men, and with the beast of the field is thy dwelling, and the grass as oxen they do cause thee to eat. And by the dew of the heavens they are wetting thee, and seven times do pass over thee, until thou knowest that the Most High is ruler in the kingdom of men, and to whom he willeth he giveth it. And that which they said to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, thy kingdom for thee abideth after that thou knowest that the heavens are ruling. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and thy sins by righteousness break off, and thy perversity by pitying the poor. Look, it is a lengthening of thine prosperity. All this hath come on Nebuchadnezzar the king. At the end of twelve months, on the palace of the kingdom of Babel, he hath been walking. The king hath answered and said, Is not this that great Babel that I have built for the house of the kingdom and the might of my strength and for the glory of mine honor? And while the word is in the king's mouth, a voice from the heavens hath fallen to thee they are saying, O Nebuchadnezzar the king, the kingdom hath passed from thee, and from men they are driving thee away, and with a beast to the field is thy dwelling. The, uh, the grass as oxen they do cause thee to eat, and seven times do pass over thee, until thou knowest that the Most High is ruler in the kingdom of men, and to whom he willeth he giveth it. In that hour the thing hath been fulfilled on Nebuchadnezzar, and from men he is driven, and the, the grass as oxen he eateth, and by the dew of the heavens his body is wet, until that his hair as eagles hath become great, and his nails as birds. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, mine eyes to the heavens have lifted up, and mine understanding unto me returneth, and the Most High I have blessed, and the eternally living one I have praised and honored, whose dominion is a dominion eternal, and his kingdom with generation and generation, and all who are dwelling on the earth as nothing are reckoned, and according to his will, he is doing among the forces of the heavens and those dwelling on the earth. And there is none that doth slap his hand and saith to him, What hast thou done? At that time, my understanding doth return unto me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and my brightness doth return unto me. And to my officials and my great ones do seek. And over my kingdom, I have been made right. And abundant greatness hath been added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, and praising and exalting and honoring the king of the heavens, for all his works are truth, and his paths judgment, and those walking in pride he is able to humble. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the word that you have given to us, breathed out by your spirit. Please send your spirit to help me to rightly divide it, to distribute it to us and plant it in our hearts, and make it to grow and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. We've recently looked at how Christ is conquering the times and the seasons through the liturgical festivals instituted by his body, the church. And such liturgical festivals obviously include Christmas, along with all the rituals and the events that go along with Christmas. And I think we've established pretty well that Christmas ought to be celebrated, and indeed it would take a very strong argument to reject celebrating it, despite the, <laughs> the Puritans 
thinking that holy days like this were the rags of the beast and nothing but the trappings of popery. Celebrating the birth of Christ goes all the way back to the earliest church, and scripture certainly requires us to honor our fathers and their traditions. But how we celebrate Christmas has evolved a great deal since that time. We did not celebrate it in the same way that they did. And it certainly differs from other times and other places, other places even today celebrate Christmas differently. So I'd like to look today at two elements or forms of our Christmas observance, things that we take for granted as major elements of what Christmas is. And I want to ask why we do them and whether we should do them, and if so, how we might do them even better. These two elements are gift giving and Christmas trees. Mel has also asked me about nativity scenes, and in light of our recent experience last week, I, I think that that would be a topic better suited to a different format, but I will give you an answer on that tomorrow. Right now, I'd like to look at gift-giving and Christmas trees because they are both things that will keep us very close to the scriptures, very close, in fact, to the Lord Jesus himself. They will help us to understand the spiritual significance of Christmas better and to focus more clearly on the glory of the incarnation and the birth of our Lord. Obviously, both gifts and trees are ubiquitous elements of Christmas celebrations in the West, but are they good Are they right? And remember, these are a kind of liturgical practice, and we know that that involves us in spiritual patterns. So what patterns are we embodying? What are we involving ourselves in? I'll start with gift-giving, because I think that is the point that Satan has attacked Christmas the hardest. We often feel that Christmas has become most corrupted exactly around this tradition. Most believers feel pretty icky about everything around giving and receiving presents on Christmas, and understandably so. Various shopping chains are always the first ones to lead the charge into the Christmas season, often a month early with their decorations, and it's not just Christmas, it's Easter as well. Smokey told me on the way over here that New World have just started adding hot cross buns to their stores. Christmas isn't even over, and they're already trying to get us to prepare for Easter. Of course, if you don't curate your media content pretty carefully, you're also bombarded with ads for increasingly expensive gifts to buy for yourself and for your mum and your dad and your kids, your grandkids, your friends, everyone. And there's a kind of commercial ratchet going on where every year you're expected to outdo yourself and buy more lavish and more numerous presents than the year before, and so is everyone else, until whatever peace and goodwill and joy the season had is entirely devoured by the stress of pushing yourself to the edge of bankruptcy so that no one will think that you lack generosity. Now, I don't think that anyone would deny that Christmas, like Thanksgiving, is a vehicle that commercial interests have hooked themselves up to, and that the very idea of gift-giving has been so tainted by the worship of mammon that the worship of Christ is now entirely eclipsed for many people. Maybe in New Zealand, I'd say most people worship him. We barely mention him. We don't hear about him. Merry Christmas is racist or something. It's happy holidays, man. But is the intrusion of commercial interests into Christmas, is this a new vehicle entirely that is driving us? Or is it just a, 
an errant trailer that has been hooked up to the true vehicle of Christmas? Is it a reason to abandon gift giving? Is gift giving, in fact, intrinsically commercial? Like you can't buy presents without participating in the idolatry of mammon? Obviously not. Commercialization is more like a cancer. It is a tumor on the body of Christmas. It is certainly not part of its healthy nature. There could be nothing more natural than giving gifts on Christmas. And even an eight-year-old with only rudimentary training in the ways of God can discern this, as Morris showed us the other day, by asking us if we have gifts under the tree because God gives gifts to us. Yes, indeed. By giving gifts, we are participating in the gift-giving nature of God. We are walking in his ways. What does Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? If thou hadst known the gift of God and who it is who is saying to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked him and he would have given thee living water. When Peter first preaches the gospel, he refers in the same way to the Holy Spirit as a gift. Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ unto remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For to you is the promise, and to your children, and to all those far off, as many as the Lord your God shall call. Three times more in Acts, the Holy Spirit is spoken of in this way as a gift. We know that is, of course, the Spirit of Christ. And, of course, the epistles also speak often of all the gifts that God has poured out in Christ. We know, for instance, that we ourselves are declared righteous as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We read about the free gift in grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, and the gift of God is life eternal in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that by grace ye are having been saved through faith, and this not of you, it is the gift of God. 1 Corinthians 1.7 tells us that we are not lacking in any gift, for as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 4.8, speaking of Christ, having gone up on high, he led captive captivity and gave gifts unto men. Of course he did, for every good giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variation or shadow of turning. James 1.17. The Lord Jesus is therefore both the great gift and the great gift giver. God gave him to the world, and his birth was the unwrapping of that gift, as it were. And this is then reflected back to him as he in turn received gifts at his birth from the men that he came to save, as recorded in Matthew's Gospel. The star they did see in the east did go before them until, having come, it stood over where the child was, and having seen the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, and having come to the house, they found the child with Mary his mother, and having fallen down, they prostrated unto him, and having opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Christmas is thus absolutely the time of gift-giving. You could certainly argue Pentecost is also a time of gift-giving, since the Holy Spirit is a great gift, but Christmas is where the gift first comes into the world, and it is where we see gifts given to Jesus as well. And when we give gifts to those that we love, we participate not in the pattern of mammon, but in the pattern of Christ himself. It is fitting, too, that we wrap these gifts. You might be thinking, okay, gifts are great. Why do we wrap them? Well, both Scripture and nature speak to how apt it is that a gift be concealed first in order to build the proper anticipation so that we would properly appreciate it when it is revealed. You notice that the majors, they opened their treasures in order to present their gifts. They were, the gifts were carried concealed. They were closed up and shut away. 
A natural example would be babies. Think of how for nine months we must wait to see our babies. We have a wrapped up gift in our congregation right now. They are carried in a hidden place and there is a reason that God knits them together in secret, hiding them from us for that time. Or think of how Paul describes the gift of God as the secret that hath been hid from the ages and from the generations, but now was manifested to his saints, to whom God did will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this secret among the nations, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Gifts are secrets. Yes, there's something quite mysterious, something quite hard to really explain. You can't quite articulate why it is, but you know it is obviously fitting and good to wrap your gifts. Christ was, as it were, wrapped up in history until he was finally revealed in the incarnation. But then even the incarnation was a kind of wrapping of its own, where the glory of the sun was veiled by flesh until it was unwrapped again at the resurrection and then again at the ascension. A continual unwrapping of the glory of God from glory to glory. The manner in which God gives the gift of Christ is progressive. There are many layers of wrapping paper, you might say. So perhaps, if we are thinking not just about why it is fitting that we observe Christmas with gifts, but also about how we might do it even more intentionally to participate in the pattern of God's own gift giving, perhaps one way that we could tweak or improve our gift giving to be more symbolic of the gift of Christ, and I I hate to do this to you ladies, but would be to wrap presents first in fancy wrapping paper and then wrap them again in plainer paper. <laughs> I don't mean to suggest that we must do this, <laughs> only that it would be fitting to do it. I'm not going to lay down a rule about something that's obviously not commanded, but I do want you to stimulate, uh, to stimulate you to think about practical ways that we could apply these spiritual patterns that we discover in Scripture especially the ones we discover in the life and the person of Christ himself. Because these are not just abstract ideas that we are expressing in our liturgical practices, including things like gift giving. They are historical events with spiritual significance, and it is good to reflect on them and to consider ways that we could embody them more fully, and especially ways, I think, that are instructive to our children. Children look at the gifts under the tree and they think, why are those there? And they come up with explanations and they hear and they test them. Just as giving gifts teaches our children about the great gift that God gave and the many gifts that flow out of the treasures that are found in him. So unwrapping those gifts to discover more wrapping paper would provoke our children to ask why. Why do things that way? This kind of approach is modeled for us in the Old Testament, which was written, of course, for our instructions that we could become skilled in liturgical celebration. Think of Exodus 12, 26, where God tells the Israelites that he is instituting the Passover in the way that he is so that it would provoke their sons, their children, to ask what it means. It shall come to pass when your sons say unto you, what is this service ye have? That ye shall say, a sacrifice of Passover it is to Yahweh, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt in his smiting the Egyptians, and our houses he delivered. And Joshua, who was one of the children at that time, takes this pattern to heart using the same teaching method that God modeled here as he has the Israelites enter the promised land. In Joshua 6, he tells them, pass over before the ark of Yahweh your God into the midst of the Jordan and lift up for you each one stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel, so that this is a sign in your midst. 
when your sons ask hereafter, saying, What are these stones to you? That ye have said to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off at the presence of the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh in its passing over into the Jordan, with the waters of the Jordan cut off, and these stones have been for a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Joshua has them set the stones up so that their children would ask why. In a similar way, one possible way, not a, not a definite has-to-do way, just a possible way I want you to think about, to establish a lasting memorial to the way that God progressively revealed the glory of the gift of the Lord Jesus would be to use multiple layers of wrapping paper. But I do not say it as a command, of course, only as an idea that occurs to me as a man who does very little actual gift wrapping. And I do not wish to add any further burden to the poor women who do such a great job with that. So that's one practical way that we could adjust our practice of gift giving to be more symbolic of what it represents, to participate more fully in the pattern of Christ. But there are a couple of others that I'd like to suggest. And in doing this again, I am in no way condemning anything that we're currently doing or suggesting that you are giving subpar gifts. In fact, I don't know what most of you currently do in your own families. All I want to do is to help you think this through so that we can be thoughtful and intentional with our gift giving. So the first thing that I'd like to suggest is that we pay careful attention to the gifts themselves. God gives good and perfect gifts. God does not give cheap gifts. He doesn't give bad gifts or hasty gifts or nasty gifts. We should be thinking in the same way. We should be thinking of quality over quantity. Unfortunately, in my observation, many people, perhaps especially grandparents buying for their grandchildren, although I must hasten to add, not my parents, but I have seen it happen. They, they like to buy millions of really cheap, badly made, rubbishy gifts, anything that seems kind of shiny or cool that will keep the kids' attention for a couple of minutes and then be discarded. And there are a lot of problems with this, obviously, including all kinds of interesting questions about clutter and minimalism and how that factors into our piety, which perhaps we'll look at another time. But the chief issue is simply that it does not reflect the gift-giving of God himself. We all know that there are many things that we have asked God for that we are very glad in hindsight he did not give to us because they would not have been the gifts that we thought they were. And we should be modeling the same wisdom, especially to our children. Children often have shiny object syndrome. They often covet some amazing little object, some gadget or knickknack. But we also know that that particular gift that they hope for will not be what they want. It will not give them the joy that they hope for. It is a vain hope. And it is good to withhold those sorts of gifts from our children if we know they will not be truly good, even though they think they will be. Now, of course, we don't have the infinite abundance that God has, so we don't have the option of giving whatever gifts we would like. We cannot give whatever we want. Often we cannot give gifts that we know would be most appropriate, that the person would most enjoy. It's just too expensive. We're constrained by the limitations that God himself puts on us, and we shouldn't feel guilty about that, unless, of course, we're actually being ungenerous. We're you know, hoarding our money on Christmas so that we're getting everything for ourselves and the gifts budget is being constrained. C.R. Wiley recently wrote a post on Twitter that captures this paradox of gift-giving quite well. He said, quote, Wives and kids, here's the truth about dad and Christmas gifts. What he wants, you can't afford. And here's the other truth. He knows you can't afford it. 
He'd be happy with cigars or cookies, preferably both. There are lots of good gifts that you can't necessarily buy for the people that you love. Of course, if dads have the money to buy the gifts that they really want, they probably would have already got them for themselves, one of the annoying things about dads. But this means that you have a limited pool of good things that you can get for the people that you love. And cigars and cookies are good gifts, assuming, of course, that they are good cigars and good cookies. They're also good in that they reflect the natural goods of creation. Food especially is a good gift that God himself gives to us. He gives it to us every day. It is part of our Lord's prayer. So it is great to participate in that pattern by giving food to others also. Things like clothes as well. In our podcast, we've been looking at the glory of clothes or things that we have made with our hands. That is also something commended in Scripture, an exercise of dominion for the, for the sake of others. Or things of good workmanship, things that others have made well. And of course, also things that symbolize something of how we know the other person, something that we know about them that few people do, some insight we have into the things that they enjoy, that we are able to give to them something that others wouldn't know to give. Anything that will not end up in the trash, or more likely chucked into a closet somewhere forever at the back of some dark place because people feel guilty about throwing away gifts. A second way of giving good gifts at Christmas that I'd like to very much consider as Redwood grows, God willing, is what Christians have traditionally called feasting the poor. Christmas has long been a time for Christians to do charitable works. If you think of the carol, Good King Wenceslas, which I have printed out for your edification and delight, this is based on a true story about a real king who was Wenceslas I, who went out looking for poor peasants to provide for on the feast of St. Stephen, which is the second day of Christmas, December 26th, Boxing Day we call it. Actually, he wasn't a king, interestingly. He was a duke. He was a duke of Bohemia in the 10th century, about 1,100 years ago, and he was so highly regarded for his Christian piety. He was considered to be such a great model of the Christian king rather than the pagan king, the Christian king who follows Christ, who gives himself for his people. He was so admired for this that after he died, he was actually crowned posthumously so that he could be rightly called a king because it seemed so fitting. Now, we are obviously not kings, but even a tiny church like ours finds itself with some resources at the end of the year. We, we discovered we had the resources to make many biscuits, for example. And I think that we are already doing a good job of modeling this way of thinking. We gave away all those cookies at Carol's by Candlelight the other night. We have, um, obviously, you don't have to just give the gift of food. You can give the gift of singing, for example, organizing something like Carol's by Candlelight. These were... Um, this wasn't like a mass-produced thing. This is something that we created, our workmanship, made by hand by a diligent wife, sung by a diligent man, with money supplied by you all to make it happen. And this is obviously, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty small thing. But I think that it's a really good first step. It shows that we are thinking in the right way about Christmas. And it sets a good precedent for how we might be more intentional about feasting others, as it were, and especially feasting those who have less than we do next Christmas. Christmas time should have a special focus on this kind of charitable 
giving, showing God's grace and goodwill and favor and charity to those in our communities who most need it. With gift giving still in mind, I'd like to turn to consider Christmas trees. I trust you see the connection, and hopefully in more than just a superficial way, in the sense that gifts go under a tree, our reading today in fact describes a king providing for his people, as Wenceslas did, in terms of a great tree. Look again at verses 11 to 12 and at how they line up with the Christmas tradition of feasting the poor. Great hath become the tree, yea, strong, and its height doth reach to the heavens, and its sight to the end of the whole land. Its leaves are fair, and its fruit great, and food for all is in it. Under it take shade the beasts of the field, and in its branches dwell the birds of the heavens, and of it are fed all flesh. Now, of course, this passage is describing Nebuchadnezzar, who at the time was not a Christian king, though I do believe he became one, as this letter makes quite clear. If any ruler sent out a letter like this today, he would be condemned as a Christian nationalist in a heartbeat. So I don't see why anyone would think that Nebuchadnezzar was any less of one. Let me also take this moment to remind you, an important side note, that you cannot spell Nebuchadnezzar without the word Chad. But the question you should be asking is, what does Nebuchadnezzar as a tree have to do with Christmas? We're not celebrating Nebuchadnezzar at Christmas time, are we? Obviously not, but the reason that we read this passage today is not because Christmas is about Nebuchadnezzar, the great tree. It is because Nebuchadnezzar, the great tree, is about Christmas. The whole point of the passage is that the tree represents something that is not ultimately of Nebuchadnezzar. It is of God. And of course, we know both from this passage and from elsewhere in Daniel, that while Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was destroyed and passed away, the Lord Jesus is given a kingdom that is eternal. Daniel 7.14, to him is given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all nations, peoples, and languages do serve him. His dominion is a dominion eternal that passeth not away and his kingdom that which is not destroyed. So if even Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is a great tree, how much more the kingdom of God? The Lord Jesus himself describes his kingdom in this way, and I should add that the kingdom and the king are identified as one and the same thing. They're used interchangeably. Matthew 13, the kingdom of the heavens is like to a grain of mustard, which a man having taken did sow in his field, which indeed is less than all the seeds. But when it may be grown, is greatest of the plants and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the heaven do come and rest in its branches." And we ourselves, Matthew 13, are described as little trees bearing fruit. Lo, the sower went forth to sow, and in his sowing, some indeed fell on the good ground and were giving fruit, some indeed a hundredfold and some sixty and some thirty. I trust you see why the tree became a symbol that Christians so readily adopted. Martin Luther reputedly popularized the tree, especially the idea of bringing Christmas trees into houses how they didn't burn all their houses down by putting candles on them it just staggers my mind. But from Germany, it spread to England through Prince Albert, who was the husband of Queen Victoria, and then from there to the rest of the world, including to New Zealand. But these things catch on because they resonate with some deep intuition that we have. It's obviously not just Christians who have this intuition. Christmas trees are very popular even among the pagans. But it is a natural intuition because it reflects something true. And so it was Christians who first recognized that truth and sanctified the intuition and saw the resonance between Christmas trees and the word of God 
and they approved the tradition. It was Christians who saw the connection between the tree and the kingdom, between the tree and life, because it's always an evergreen tree, isn't it? Especially in the Northern Hemisphere, no one's going to bring a, a scrubby old nasty thing with no leaves into their house. And it's Christians who saw the connection also between the shape of certain trees, like the fir tree, and the shape of mountains. We're all familiar by now with the idea that both mountains and trees connect heaven and earth, that they represent the whole structure of the cosmos itself. So it should be no surprise at all that Christians chose trees that are mountain-shaped to put into their homes at Christmas. It should also not surprise us that they decorated them with symbolic fruits. We've already seen the fruit in the tree, but of course, there are many more fruits in Scripture, and the Christmas tree, like Christ himself, gathers up all the trees of Scripture, from the tree on which Jesus was crucified, he of course was the first fruits of creation, to the tree of life bearing 12 fruits in each month, rendering its fruits, to the great tree of God's kingdom itself, in which we grow like fruits, and also like little trees yielding fruits. And of course, we're not just fruit bearers. As we saw recently, we are also light givers. Ye are the light of the world. They that turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12, 3. We are set as lights in the great world tree, the cosmic mountain, with the great light, the morning star, Jesus Christ himself at the top. And so, of course... Christmas trees ought to be decorated with symbolic fruits and lights. Now let me add one last thing. Mel asked about nativity scenes, and I said I wouldn't reason through that here. It's better suited to a different format. But I would like to tell you my conclusion here, because it connects with Christmas trees. I believe it is good and fitting to have a nativity scene, but I especially believe it is good and fitting to put that nativity scene under your Christmas tree, right in the middle it is an exercise in visual instruction to see the tree full of fruit and light growing out of the gift that God gave in a manger, surrounded by the gift-giving magi and circled about with our own gifts as we participate in the same pattern that was established 202 decades ago now and has been embodied by God's people ever since. I hope these ideas have been helpful to you. These thoughts and with them in mind, I have selected perhaps my favorite carol for us to sing, which captures a lot of what we have just spoken of and speaks in the third verse, especially of the wondrous gift that God gives. So let's stand now and sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem.